Our first movie tells the story of a friendship behind prison walls that spans more than 20 years. So welcome to episode 22 of Mental Brow Madness, an exercise in podcast hubris. My name is Derek Gane. Papa John's founder and former CEO John Shatner gave his first major interview since being ousted from the company, and it's oh safe boy. to say he's not happy with the way things went down. Oh boy. Shatner, 58, uh, gave Wait. the wide-ranging interview with Kentucky TV station WDRB, weird place to give it, but sure, uh, where he criticized the pizza chain for everything from the quality of the pizza to the upper management. I've had over 40 pizzas in 30 days, and it's not the same pizza Shatner's head of the company. Let's pause there. What a wild thing to say as a human being. Even when I was a scumbag college kid, I didn't eat 40 pizzas in 30 days. Here's the thing. 40 pizzas in 30 days is... A cry for help. It's not even food anymore. It's it's that, That's um, a, a dubious feat. Let's call it that. And here, this is coming from someone who has literally eaten two and a half pizzas in the last week. But here's here's the spoiler alert, dear audience. I made two of those pizzas, and I live with someone. So did you see, did you see that now he's his new January goal is to eat fifty pizzas in thirty days? No, because I don't follow the shenanigans of Papa John. I do. I love as I called him on Twitter the most divorced man in history. Uh, I yeah. love Papa John. Um, but anyway, so uh, Shatner said in the interview that he was set up, calling the controversy that led to his resignation a farce. I never dreamed that people that I cared about, that I loved, that I made multimillionaires would do what they did, Shatner said. I just didn't know it was going to happen from people on the inside doing this. I thought it would come from the outside. Shatner said he believes that the company's board of directors used the black community and race as a way to steal the company. <sighs> Papa John's did not immediately respond to a request from CNN fair um CNN and then <laughs> here's my favorite group of paragraphs in this whole thing um because it has a a wonderful turn of phrase from papa john does it involve the n-word at all no luckily <laughs> it does here's my promise to the uh all of our audience i will never say the n-word on this podcast it's a good promise to make <laughs> Um, Shatner, who founded the company in 1984, believes it is now being mismanaged. He has sold most of his stock in the company and is no longer the largest individual shareholder. My metaphor is, there's no reason to be in the car when the car crashes, even if you love the car. While he said that he currently has no interest in returning to the company, he believes that he would be, he would be welcomed back with open arms. If the management team was out and I went back in, they'd be cheering, he said. The they'd be doing backflips. They'd be bouncing off the walls the fuck is wrong with this guy here's and here's where here's my, my favorite thing while shatner declined to reveal any more details he had an ominous warning <laughs> an ominous warning stay tuned the day of reckoning will come oh my god so that's a, a little update on <laughs> where papa john is at uh what his life is like right now um derek how do you feel about papa john uh, as a father and a pizza maker? 
I've never. I, well, they don't have Papa John's in Canada, so I can't really? attest to the quality of his wares. But uh, Papa John seems like a scumbag, and he seems like the kind of guy who would piss on a pizza out of spite. And I don't like those kinds of people. Do you ever see the picture of him like shit faced at a sports game? Yeah, was it like a University of Kentucky? I think basketball game. Yeah, good picture. Probably yeah. one of the best pictures. Yeah, if I had to make cats, a list of all the pictures, that's probably one of them. Yeah, a work of art. <laughs> <laughs> Just like every pizza that Papa John's makes. Their uh, pizzas are fine. That's my review of Papa John's pizza. Apparently, they're going to be making vegan pizzas sometime soon. So that is actually a giant boon for me because usually I just have to order from Domino's and get no cheese and it tastes disgusting and I just live with my life. Isn't Shaq on the board of Papa John's now? Is that true? Hold on. Now I got to Google this. NBA Hall of Famer Shaquille O'Neal. I know he he has his own um, restaurant. Yeah, he does. Shaq steps in as triple threat to help Papa John's reverse financial woes. Okay, hey, look at Papa John's $8 million deal with Shaq. Man, it's a lot (laughs) of money. I mean, I like Shaq. I'm not sure that I like Shaq $8 million worth to like do nothing for my company. I believe I believe he is what they call in the soft sciences a brand ambassador. I think he's there because they they don't want their brand associated with the N word anymore. You know what? Fair. Um, but Derek, we yes. don't always talk about racist pizza magnates on this podcast. Yes, we don't. <laughs> what do we do instead? Ah, uh, man. Occasionally we talk about cum, but more often. <laughs> We talk about I, movies. Let's not say more often. Let's say maybe equally as often. But usually what we do here is we talk about movies. Specifically, we talk about the internet movie databases, top 250 films of all time, circa August 2019. Or wait a minute. August 2018? 18. Yep. Oh my god. We've been doing this for a while, Derek. Oh my god. Okay, sure. To be fair, we, so, did, take like, we did take like a six-month break. But- that's right. So here's how this... Uh, Here's how this whole thing works. We've taken uh, the top 250 films, uh, according to the Internet Movie Database's uh, user base, and uh, circa 2000, uh, August 2018, and put, uh, put them in a single elimination bracket. Uh, and to round it out, we've added three movies. Uh, we've added three movies each that have comparable vote counts and scores to the films on the bottom of the 250 that were already provided by IMDb. So our idea is to find the best movie of all time, asterisk. There's a lot of good movies in this bracket, and there's a lot of bad movies. And uh, we're here to separate the wheat from the chaff. Okay, so we're still in the midst of the first round. We have, since this is a two-person operation, um, there are going to be disagreements, and sometimes we have to sort of cast uh, an imaginary third vote. So we each get a veto. Uh, We each get four vetoes in the first round. I still have three left. Isabel has two. And uh, we'll figure out – I think we figured out that we're going to have – what's it? Three next round, two the round after that, and then one every round until the end? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, well, I understand. Okay. So the movies that we watched for this particular episode, the matchups are as follows. Snatch versus Wild Strawberries and The Usual Suspects versus La Ain. So we'll get started with the first one of these. Uh, so a quick tale of the tape before we get to it. The 103 seed – Snatch, released in 2000, uh, written and directed by Guy Ritchie, starring Benicio Del Toro, Dennis Farina, Jason Fleming, Vinnie Jones, Brad Pitt, Raid Sherbigia, and Jason Statham, uh, made a tidy sum, $10 million budget, $83.6 million taken, didn't really have 
any real awards play. Versus, the 154th seed, Wild Strawberries, written and directed by uh, Ingmar Bergman, so a battle of writer-directors here, uh, starring Victor Sjostrom, B.B. Anderson, Ingrid Thulin, and Gunnar Bjornstrand. I didn't get any uh, budget data on this, but it doesn't look like it costs a ton of money. Like, the most expensive prop in the movie appears to be a car. And uh, the one, not really a ton of awards play either. It didn't play fests or anything, but I did uh, have one bit of interesting trivia about this film. In 1963, when uh, Cinema Magazine asked Stanley Kubrick what his 10 favorite movies were, uh, this movie, Wild Strawberries, was number two, sandwiched between uh, Federico Fellini's Il Vitelloni at number one and Citizen Kane at number three. So, Snatch then. Snatch then. What is there to say about this movie besides it doesn't hold up very well? (laughs) Yeah, Bloom came off the rose just a little bit, I think. Because I hadn't seen this movie in nearly 20 years. See, I had never seen it. Okay. This is my first time. I mean, I'd seen other Guy Ritchie movies. I'd seen like uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. No, that's not him. Sorry. Lockstock no, and Two Smoking Barrels. Lockstock same, is him. Same fucking title. Um, I saw the Sherlock Holmes movie. Yeah. I saw his King Arthur movie, which was shit. Sure. And I just had never seen this one, but I decided to finally like, obviously I didn't decide. I was made <laughs> to by IMDb to watch this film. And... Do you have a way to, like, explain why this was a big deal at one time and why it's still this high in the IMDb Top 250? Because it was kind of baffling to me. I think, because I think I watched this. Okay, so let's break this down. Uh, In the year 2000, I didn't see this in the year 2000. I must have seen this late high school or early college. So it hadn't been, it hadn't been 20 years. Let's make it 15. So this is 2005, 2006. I'm 17, 18 years old. And I don't know if you've noticed this about, about me, Isabel, but I am a heterosexual man. And every heterosexual man in the world, when they come of age, when they turn 16, they get their driver's license. And at the DMV, they get you to sign a contract, which says you have to watch at least three Guy Ritchie movies. And I watched Lockstock and I watched uh, Snatch. And I also watched Sherlock Holmes when it came out. They put the movies on a layaway plan if you want. It's pretty nice. (laughs) So the thing with this is that Snatch is the kind of movie, this is kind of like a second level hot couch guy slash dorm room poster movie. It's not in the starter pack. This is the expansion. This is your your, like evolution. Yeah, this is- This is is the Charmeleon to the Charmander of- you know, like Fight Club. Of Fight Club, exactly. This, uh, so like, you've got to go to Europe. There are some <laughs> actors you recognize, but some actors that you don't. Uh, they're speaking in like cool slang. They're being hipply racist. It's like the next it is level. Almost impossible to understand what Brad Pitt is saying in any moment. It's thoroughly, yeah. So yeah, Guy Ritchie is a lot. Well, it's definitely one of uh, my sort of entry points into contemporary action cinema. Now, what no one could have predicted, maybe people could have predicted this in 2000 when Snatch came out, because this movie is basically a do-over of Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Mm -hmm. If not necessarily in its plot elements, but definitely in its style. One might go so far as to call Mr. Ritchie a one-trick pony. No, who would ever say that? (laughs) Not not us, Derek. We're far too kind to ever say that, (laughs) something like that. Because also, Guy Ritchie kind of lost his way now. Because 
He did, as you said, the King Arthur movie, and he did the Aladdin movie with Will Smith. And oh, that's right. Shit, I, I'm totally forgot that that was a thing he did. That's one of his. And now he's got now this year in 2020. Happy New Year, by the way, everybody. Um, we are going to see what hopefully is going to be a return to form, aka another redo of Lock, Stock, Slack, Snash, called The Gentleman, which appears to be self-aware 2020 Guy Ritchie. I want it to be good, but I don't know if it will. Now, the thing with Snatch is that it's, like I had said before, it's kind of your entry into contemporary action cinema. It's, 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 it's manic and energetic and loud. Everyone yells. And it's one of those, I believe Wikipedia calls them hyperlink narratives, which is where you have stories. It's a story where multiple stories converge at different points. So here, and before we get to talking about the actual meat of the film, what we in 2000 didn't know is that just a few years later, there'd be another young British director who would be uh, known for his very energetic genre pastiches that would completely obliterate him in terms of style and humor and panache. And that, of course, is Edgar Wright. So I think Edgar Wright just made Guy Ritchie obsolete. Because you watch a movie like Hot Fuzz, which is just as chaotic and referencing back to the same movies as Snatch is, you know, referencing action movies from the 1980s, referencing the work of uh, notorious British director Michael Winner. It's, it's, it's in that same vein, but done with such immaculate craft and great comic timing that it just renders a movie like Snatch, even though it still has its purple pleasures upon rewatch, completely obsolete. So I'm going to be honest. Um, when we were talking about Guy Ritchie, I looked at his filmography. I remembered that yes. The Man from Uncle exists. That's right. Um, that's one I never of his. saw it, but I, Some I know of it. Some people will kick for that movie. Uh, doesn't Juan? I think Juan goes to bat for it. If he doesn't, okay. he goes to bat for Elizabeth Debicki or Debicki. Elizabeth Debicki, great actress. Um, and so I was kind of just looking at pictures of her for the past little bit. But I was running my mouth about, off about action cinema Edgar Wright, and you were just looking at photos of beautiful girls. I mean, hey, there's worse <laughs> things to do. But um, the, I'm kind of shocked that there are no Edgar Wright movies on this 250. That Snatch still has a place here, but like Shaun of the Dead doesn't? Shaun of the That's Dead, kind of Hot Fuzz. Strange. I think all of Edgar Wright's movies are better than Snatch. Oh, certainly. <laughs> Even like the one I don't like, Baby Driver. I really like Baby Driver. <laughs> yeah, because you're – it's it's a Derek movie. I'll say that. It's, it's a Derek movie. It's a, it's a Derek movie. You know, I, I mean, don't mean that dismissively. I just mean it in terms of it is a Derek movie. I mean, it's um, that's the way that's like the that's like the way you get the jukebox musical to work is you just make it a literal jukebox and also I mean, you, make you're a also just a really big Kevin Spacey fan. So sure, I mean, you're we'll really get to excited that. To see him <laughs> in that movie, like you want to talk about a movie that's not aged well? Just look at the opening credits of The Usual Suspects. But we'll get to that in just a minute. So yeah, I want to hear about what you thought, considering that you had not seen this before. And you like uh, for me, obviously, it the bloom came off the rose. This is a movie that I went from really, really, really loving to a movie that I now merely like. But I want to hear what you thought about this uh, coming in fresh. Um, I think that I will forget most of it in a week. Um, sure. It, it was very, I hate to say tedious, because it, it's, it's not really fair to its style. 
But everyone that I liked in it, I was like, I wish they were in a better thing. Like, I liked Dennis Farina a ton. I wish he was in something better. I like Brad Pitt a lot. I wish he was in something better. I really like Jason Statham. He doesn't have anything to do in this. Fuck all. Yeah. I remembered his part being meteor, but I guess that was just me hyping Statham. Um, I also was kind of shocked at the amount of racism in the film. <laughs> like, oh, who boy. It's like, oh, like fun, jokey racism. But then like now, like 10 years later, it's it's <laughs> that don't fly so high. Yeah. It turns out like constantly making fun of uh, Irish travelers is not like the funniest thing in the world. I mean, okay, we okay, we are operating in genre. This is this is True. a pulp crime film, but believe like, and I like, I'm not one to be like, oh, temper down, t- temper down your fit, your 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 fiction devices. But believe me when I say that it is overwhelming. <laughs> I, there's a lot of it. Like you like it's, it's way more than you expect, and if you haven't seen it's this way movie in a while, it's way more than you remember. Oh, one hundred percent. It is. It's not like a couple of times. It's in every scene, and then sometimes that's the crux of the scene. Um, but the thing that like I kind of struck me is that a lot of times the way Richie shot things, it it was kinetic, but pointlessly so. Like the thing that I keep thinking back to is there's uh, these uh, the sequence where um, Jason Statham and whatever his buddy's name is in the movie is trying to get Brad Pitt to do um, a boxing match for them. Yes, and uh, they're like, okay, they're doing like the like the the rabbit run, the hare run, where they have like dogs chase down a rabbit, and they're like, okay, if the rabbit gets away, we win. If the rabbit gets caught, you guys win. And the way that's shot is so choppy and weird that by the end of it. I wasn't until someone said what happened that I was like, oh, okay, I understand what happened. It takes away all like the drama and the tension of what that scene should be and turns it into a big joke, which I think it's supposed to be too, but it's also like a joke with no weight and a joke that takes too long to tell. It's it's shot. I mean, I thought I mean, I thought the scene was legible. I I, I knew like whatever, but it was shot like a like a mid 90s sort of electronic music video. That's a good way to put it. That's a very good, like, it's, it looks like the video for Firestarter. <laughs> it kind of looks like a crappier version of the music video for Firestarter, exactly. Now, if the music video for Star- for Firestarter were on this top 250, then we'd have some competition. But as is... Is Chris Cunningham, like, the one music video person who's, like, not made a full-length movie? I think so, because, um, you know, a while back they did those box sets, those DVD box sets of a bunch of different music video directors. Like, hey, here's a bunch mm-hmm. of their stuff. And there was, like, Michelle Gondry. There was uh, Spike Jones. I think there was one other person that got one, too. And then there was Cunningham, who, to the best of my knowledge, is still just doing shorts. And even then, saying still doing, I haven't seen anything he's done for quite a while. Even though I think his style of those of that group is the most indebted to the time he was coming up in. Yes. It's very difficult to like see his work now without thinking, oh, that's 2001. The last music video listed on his Wikipedia page is a video um, – is a documentary – is a multimedia documentary for the group Warpaint. I, I, I'm presuming that he's still working, but I, I don't – yeah, I don't think he's got like movies, like full lengths anyway. But all that, all that to say – well, the, I think the, the opening scene, the opening robbery, I think is the most – it's kind of the most emblematic of the film because it's loud, it's garish. There's lots of just over the top stuff that is mostly there to be like, to give you like sensory overload. 
and um also vaguely anti-semitic i was gonna say wildly (laughs) anti-semitic okay you know fair i get i get that but um yeah this is um i mean i think i said on letter boss that i still like how how fidgety and purple this movie is but i can't I can't give it the old okie dokie like I did when I was 17. And I think that's what constitutes character growth. Um, just as a side note, I was actually looking up that uh, those that director's label series of DVDs that I was thinking yep. of. So the people I was forgetting, um, one is uh, Jonathan Glazer, who sure. has made some Director very, very fine films. Under the Skin. I mm-hmm. think that was the DTHL movie of the year the year it came out. I believe it was, yeah. Uh, Mark Romanek was one of them. Who uh, yeah. made a one-hour one hour photo, photo, which is quite a good film, and I haven't seen anything else he's done. People thought it bad for that. Uh, Never let me go. I've heard good things, but I haven't seen it, so I don't things. want to say too much. And then um, Anton Corbin or Corbijn. Uh, yeah, uh, Anton Corbin. I think it's Dutch. Yes, it is. Who directed uh, uh, a uh, quite a uh, few not films. a masterpiece. Not a, like he did a bunch of uh, uh, like concert films for like Depeche Mode and um, uh, someone else whose name I'm, I think he did worked with U two once, but he did he did make a, a kind of like a a, a, a stoic minimalist uh, spy thriller with uh, George Clooney called The American, which is actually pretty good. I mean, he worked with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman in A Most Wanted Man. That was the last film that he was in, right? Wasn't it? Uh, yeah, among the last performances he did, yeah. Um, and then he made some of the movies that no one really cared about. But you know who has made some movies that people care about? <laughs> uh, a certain Swede by the name of Ingmar Bergman. Yes, Ingmar Bergman. And this is not the first time Mr. Bergman has showed up in uh, in our uh, in our little tournament. Uh, Winter Light has moved on to the second round. But this is the first time that it is not my fault. This is a, yeah. This one is for real, legit in the two fifty at one fifty four wild strawberries uh at one point in the 60s maybe considered mid-tier bergman now recognized as one of his masterpieces and i would be inclined to agree this is a very good film i would still consider it mid-tier but uh mid-tier bergman is better than almost anyone else so that's not an insult in any sort of way and i could see this movie going up on rewatch oh 100 percent but for me, it didn't have the same punch as something like Winter Light or Cries and Whispers or Persona, which are like some of my favorite films ever. Uh, it didn't punch me in that same way. It was a little bit too... <laughs> if, if, I know, if I may I know be, what you're going to fucking say. And it's so hilarious. It's too happy. It's, it's not dour <laughs> and sad enough for me. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I think you know I, I like movies that are plotting and have existential dread at every edge of it. And this movie... Well, this- has some existential dread, and I think those are actually yeah. the most effective parts of the film. But this movie also has like out and out jokes, which I would venture so far as to say that Ingmar Bergman's like entire oeuvre kind of deals with existential dread. Yes, but there's there's shades of there's shades in the gray there. Yeah, there's some there's some ninety minute exercises in existential dread that are more existential, and some of them are a little lighter. I remember back like we're gonna talk about the Seventh Seal relatively soon and i was like kind of surprised upon rewatch then that there were like actual jokes yes yes because my formulation of ingmar bergman in my head is just like like a fucking sourpuss to to be fair i think that also like even his plotting movies like cries and whispers and winter light have jokes they are dark jokes they're very often very sick jokes but uh there are jokes and i think he's underrated for how funny he can be 
and for how witty his dialogue can be. But Wild Strawberries is, of the films I've seen of his, is the most openly, like, fun, I guess I'd say. I, I mean, I think it's his, I think it's one of, I think it's one of the most hopeful films that you too can find peace with yourself before the cold embrace of the grave. I'm, without getting too deep into it, <laughs> um, which we, which we shouldn't do. I don't, cause we're gonna have plenty of chances to talk about this film in the future because, Shocker, yeah, I, I don't, it, yeah. I think it's a better film than Snatch, but it sure is. I think that the hope in this is less, uh, like, in the structure of the film, uh, given like the age of the protagonist and the way that he deals with the weight of the history upon him, it's conceptually just as heavy, but the way that's portrayed, um, it's a much more frivolous kind of hope to me. Whereas something like Winterlight or especially Cries and Whispers, I think the final scene of Cries and Whispers is one of the most hopeful in all of cinema after an absolutely shattering, um, rest of the film. And I think that that like shattering nature of the, uh, rest of the film makes that hope more engaging. But, Wild Strawberries is the most conventionally hopeful, I will say. I suspect that this is just because I think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that we have fundamentally different outlooks in this respect in terms of the human condition, <laughs> if you permit me to be so bold. I think that is true, Derek. I think that is true. <laughs> okay, cool. This is, not, this is not necessarily an aesthetic thing. This is a, this is a uh, constitution of your soul thing. Well, I do think that there are some aesthetic choices that are kind of weird. Like, I think especially early on, the the music is more heavy-handed than it should be, and it feels more like, quote-unquote, European art film. <laughs> this film is the most stereotypically, like, what you think of when you think of European art film that I think Bergman made. And 100%. I think that that the stylistic trappings of that and the way they've come to, that I've come to understand them and, like, see them as kind of funny based on, like, parodies of them and other things – um, makes it so it's it, I'm able to take those stylistic choices less seriously, and they're more difficult for me to integrate into a into a watch. Which is interesting because this movie uses silence very well. Yeah, it has these certainly. extended periods where nothing it shouldn't is have said, music. Nothing that's, is that's really my, heard. That's my like genuine statement: is it shouldn't have music besides the stuff that the people sing. Okay, so it should just be all diegetic sound. Yes. Um. So briefly, the plot of Wild Strawberries. So, old man Victor, uh, Victor Sjostrom, who was a uh, a uh, influential and popular Swedish director in his own right, and a uh, idol of Bergman's, stars as a crotchety old fart who um, is to receive a honorary degree at his alma mater, and his whole family name, fucking. I just want to say real quick, his name is Isaac Borg, which is such Isaac a wonderful <laughs> Swedish name. Those that's a name that you can put on on uh, knuckle tattoos, and it'll fit. So he's a crotchety old man, and uh, it is um, it is uh, he's told by his uh, daughter-in-law, played by B.B. Uh, Anderson. Is it B.B. Anderson? No, it's Ingrid Thulin who plays the daughter-in-law. Yes. Uh, Ingrid Thulin tells him, "Man, man, your whole family thinks you fucking suck, man. <laughs> it's like you fucking pissant, crotchety old fart. You don't you don't have the capacity to love in you. You don't have the capacity for reflection and introspection." And then we have about 90 minutes of him grappling with this and eventually getting to the point where he can do some introspection. Mm -hmm. uh, aided uh, through and through the magic of cinema, he does so in uh, some of the most uh, iconic dream sequences in the uh, European art film canon. Certainly. And I think those dream sequences are both very good. And I think they're good for different reasons. I think the first one is very 
metaphoric and it like kind of sets up the tone of the film. Mm-hmm. But it's it's sort of emotionally detached, at least like when I watch it. Whereas the second one is far more emotionally involved. It's about his very personal anxieties, about his very personal history and the way he perceives his history. And then finally, him kind of looking back on his wife, who is dead at the point at this point in the film, looking mm-hmm. back on a a critical moment in their relationship, let's say, to not get too into it. And sure. the way that he reflects on that and the way that he views that moment is genuinely really beautiful and powerful in uh in the way that i think uh, bergman is at his best yeah um i was fond of um i liked um there uh there was the the trial mm-hmm. um uh the, the trial style uh dream sequence which i believe was the second one yes which um uh I, I, which I, I liked conceptually because it was very, um, how to say, it was, it, it managed to pull off this very, very difficult, uh, balancing act where it was showy, like, it, it, it kind of, uh, told and didn't show, but not too much. It's like, you are guilty of being guilty. It's mm-hmm. like, ah, cute, whatever. But I do, I do like the balance that strikes because, in the fiction of the film, this is his own consciousness talking back to him, right? Yes. And um, I like the the notion that he's constantly being confronted with these evident truths and only now has started sort of engaging with them. And I think that Thulin, as his daughter-in-law, kind of forcing him to engage with that is, in my opinion, the best part of the film. I also... I, I love Ingrid Thulin. I think she's one of the best actresses ever. And I think that the Good portrayal she in this. Uh, gives as Marianne is, it starts out very combative, but also very mm-hmm. joyful and playful. Mm-hmm. And you can see that she, there's an, there's a way to, to play that character where she hates the old man. Right. And she clearly doesn't um, when you start the film and she's not supposed to. She thinks that he's an asshole and she thinks that he is uh, doesn't care for anyone but himself, and he is an egoist, as she refers to him. Mm-hmm. Um, but she has an affection for him, and that affection, the way that it kind of ebbs and flows throughout the rest of the film, and eventually, I think their final moment together is actually really beautiful and, and wonderful. That's the core of the film. I think without the subtlety she displays in that, a lot of it just wouldn't work as well. And without someone to play off of, I don't think that uh, it would have worked as well for uh, Isaac Borg. This is just like, this is just a road movie where the road is paved with your own past. Yes. And ultimately, you can go home again, sort of. Sort of. If I may quote from my own Letterboxd review, which is just a quote of a Joanna Newsom song. Please. Which is what it made me think of immediately when I finished watching it, is um, in her song, Time is a Symptom. Uh, she says, the moment of your greatest joy sustains. Not axe nor hammer, tumor tremor can take it away, and it remains. And it pains me to say that I was wrong. Love is not a symptom of time. Time is just a symptom of love. And yeah. I prefer to listen to that song than watch the movie, <laughs> but I feel the movie is getting at a similar idea of there are moments of joy in your life that you can, that cannot be taken away from you. And there are moments of like kind of that pure happiness. And that's also the ending of Cries and Whispers, to be fair, is this one moment of just simple happiness that 
the rest of the hell around it and the rest of the mistakes you've made around it don't diminish and can't be taken away from you. And I think that that is where the movie's at its strongest. I think that other aspects of it, I would like more if it wasn't a Bergman movie, like the trio of kids they pick up, um, sure. one of whom looks almost exactly like his um, cousin who he was he was in love with. And then there's an, well, a- both, an atheist and both a theologian. Both Anderson. Yes. And then there's a theologian and an atheist who get into a fist fight about God at one point. <laughs> um, I think those characters are fun and interesting, but they also feel like they're from like a Fellini film and not from a Bergman film. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I think that works conceptually in that they're just like hitchhikers on the road home. I think they are supposed to be this sort of intrusive presence. I feel like that just ruins the mood for me, and I, I like Bergman as mood pieces a lot. Uh, all right. I mean, I'm not going to tell you how to like Ingmar Bergman movies, but... <laughs> So, uh, I, th- I believe that concludes our discussion on this, uh, on this, uh, th- I believe yes. this concludes this particular matchup. A, a film, uh, so. to, to be fair, I do, will say I've been kind of down about Wild Strawberries, but it's a film I'm very excited to revisit. And like I said, I think could go up now that I'm more familiar with the way that it's moving and the rhythms it's using and that I'm able to prepare for those changes in tone that I wasn't really prepared for the first time around. And I think having sure. some of that forewarning will help me kind of integrate that more instead of it feeling like jarring. So, uh, congratulations, Wild Strawberries. You move on to round two. Hooray. Now we have two Ingmar Bergman films in round two, and we'll probably have a third one, but... Uh, yeah, there's a non-zero chance that we'll have a third one. Turns out, he makes good movies. Good filmmaker. Sometimes, sometimes the canon gets it right. Not always, but sometimes. Um, so, speaking of getting things wrong... <laughs> speaking oh, of... Boy. All right, man. I mean, let's just, I just have to like rattle this list of credits. It, off. it is kind of a bummer that half the time this podcast is the catalog of awful human beings. Yeah, I mean, and this movie in particular that we're going to talk about. Uh, so, our second matchup, Tale of the Tape. Uh, first up, the 26th seed, The Usual Suspects, released in 1995, directed by <sighs> Brian Singer, written by Christopher McQuarrie, starring uh, Stephen Baldwin. Gabriel Byrne, Chaz Palminteri, Kevin Pollock, Pete Postlewaite, who returns. Uh, this is his second... Uh, yes, after um, um, In the Name of the Father? In the Name of the Father, that's right. Uh, I'm just stalling because I don't want to read Kevin Spacey's name. <laughs> and uh, Benicio Del Toro. Um, $6 million budget, $34.4 million take, so a hit. And two for two at the Academy Awards, including a Best Original Screenplay win for Christopher McQuarrie and a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for... Kevin Spacey. Versus uh, the 231 seed, La Ain, released also in 1995. Uh, dire- uh, written and directed by Mathieu Kassovitz, starring Vincent Cassel, Hubert Koundé, and Saïd Tagmawi. Uh, a, a more modest hit, but a hit nonetheless. $2.6 million budget, $15.3 million take. Uh, Kassovitz won Best Director at Cannes. And the movie went three for 11 at the César Awards in 1996, winning Best Film, Best Editing, and Best Sound Design. Two fun facts about that. All three leads were nominated for Best New Star at the César Awards, and all of them lost, because I guess they split the vote. And um, uh, at those same César Awards, one of the nominees for Best Foreign Film was Brian Singer's The Usual Suspects. Boy, howdy. 
Boy, howdy. There's a, there's a lot so, of things in common between these two films, which we'll get to in a moment. Although I do want to say real quick, did you say that Kevin Spacey won Best Supporting Actor? That is correct. So who's the lead in this film then? I believe it would be uh, a gentleman known as Gabriel Byrne. Man, I guess, but also no. <laughs> eh, maybe Chaz, who knows? Chaz Palmer. Hey, everyone's favorite actor in uh, The Oogie Loves and The Great Movie Adventure. That's right. Ah, man. What a movie. Well, man, that movie is, we should have watched that movie instead. I'm nah, going to make I a le- bold claim. Uh, the Oogie <laughs> Loves and The Great Balloon Adventure is a more fun movie to watch than The Usual Suspects. I mean, now it is. <laughs> I'm, should we get I'm, into I, that real quick? The fact that the director of this film is Brian Singer, and it stars Stephen Baldwin and Kevin Spacey, one of whom is just, I, ju- I think as you phrased it in your text, a MAGA chud. The other one yeah. of whom is an alleged, let's say for the sake of our podcast, alleged child molester and murderer. Wait, did he kill a guy? Well, I mean, I'm getting a little conspiracy theory here, and I apologize, oh. but also- um, multiple of his accusers have died, and then one of his accusers died, and then he released that video on like dis- in like late December, where like there was obvious nods to that in a very suspicious fashion. Oh my god! Yeah, it's fucked up. I'm not making uh, to be clear. <laughs> legally speaking, I am not making the claim that Kevin Spacey had anyone killed, but but as a, but as a it, conspiracy, there, there's a non-zero chance. Let's say. Uh Okay, so for those who don't know, oh god, <laughs> the the Oogie Loves in the Big Balloon Adventure was a children's film released some time ago, within the last decade. I forget yes. exactly when. It would have been two thousand and twelve uh, because Jen got me posters of it when she was working at the movie theater. All right, so two thousand twelve, and what it is basically, it's like a dog shit Teletubbies ripoff. It and, is better than and, Teletubbies. It's but I get I get your and, point. But <laughs> I'm just trying to get a point across. Okay. I don't have any takes. Um, I don't have any Teletubbies takes. I'm 31. Wow, rude, so, but fine. <laughs> um, but so the Yugi loves is basically uh, a brand in search of a movie. There were there were going to be Oogie Loves toys. There were going there, it was going to be, to be the clear, next big this thing. This was and not a thing before the film. It's not like oh no, people no, no. Are, people are are like clamoring for an Oogie Loves film. This is no, this made is like, whole cloth to, to be a phenomenon. Exactly. And as you could probably imagine, it fucking wasn't. And it was a massive flop. And and us uh, at home, uh, because no one paid to see this movie, obviously, like uh, this movie, like this is not a good movie, but it's a movie you kind of have to see because it's a it's the kind of kids movie that presupposes that you know songs <laughs> that you would have no way of knowing actually exist. Uh, it also includes like have- the scare the scariest Carrie Elway's performance you could imagine. Yeah, he has this smile on his face that stops being a smile and just becomes a rictus and like a like a death mask. It's and I love Carrie Elway's. I love Carrie Elway's. But I mean, we all love Carrie Elway's. But what the hell is his name of his character? Like, uh, like uh, hold on, I got a cowboy. He's a cowboy, cowboy Carl or Bouncy Bill or. Uh, ass slap Sam or something like that because he slaps his ass in like a in like a close <laughs> up does. at one point. That um, image is seared in my memory. God, and Christopher Lloyd's in that movie too. I totally forgot about that. He's no, Lara Sombrero. Inc- yeah, the ca- the cast is stacked. Um, but the reason, the whole reason I watched it uh, was because at the time it was released, it was the second lowest grossing movie per screen it opened on after Delgo. 
Delgo, which I have also right. seen and is also not very good. Turns out. So the re- so and and yeah, this is kind of a um, this is what the kids would call cringe. Uh, it has, like Isabel was saying, the very bobbly wobbly, bobbly wobbly. Thank you. The very sad but very committed Carrie Elwes performance. Tony Braxton shows up to sing a slow jam that's very <laughs> not oh apropos. Um, and Chaz Palminteri owns a diner. Chaz Palminteri owns a diner. He's like a soda jerk. He's got like the paper Krispy Kreme. Hat I think he's like married to a cow. It's insinuated that he fucks a cow, and this this experience is less bad than revisiting the usual suspects in 2020. Talk about movies that did not hold up. I mean, if we were to put the story in a vacuum, if we were to take away all the, if all if it was directed and starred amorphous gray blobs, uh huh, it it's still an okay crime thriller. It's fine. It's fine. Well, if I'm going to be doing that with a film, and this is um, m- me kind of sideways recommending another film, if I'm going to partition off someone's politics or someone's actions from the film that they are in, I would much rather do it with something like Dried Across Concrete, which I thought was yes. a genuinely incredible film that just happens to star Mel Gibson and is, I don't want to say rapidly <laughs> right wing, but. It has some leanings, let's say. Sure. There might be a discussion where uh, a couple of police are talking about how people are too sensitive these days and that racist being called racist is like being called communist during the Red Scare. That might happen in the film. But it also sure. might be maybe the best genre film I've seen all year. Whereas The Usual Suspects is in – it's in the bottom half of the, of the crime films I saw last year. Um, I mean – this is another. This is kind of like there. It, it it's a lot like Snatch. Tra- it's a lot like Snatch. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's a movie that hasn't aged super well. It's kind of amusingly purple in places. Uh, I still love the rhythms of like the twisty crime thriller. I still love it when in a movie, in the last like ten minutes, all the threads get tied together. And whether or not I like was ahead of the film, whether or not that whether or not I've actually seen the film before, I just love how the teasing out of the plot in the last five minutes works on a cinematic level. And I and let's give credit where credit is due. Good performance by Chaz. Good performance by Gabriel Byrne, who should have been a gazillion times more popular than he was in his heyday. Uh, the best Stephen Baldwin performance. The best Stephen Baldwin performance, and it's not that good. <laughs> it's oh, boy. okay. It's it's self consciously mid nineties crazy. Um, credit to Kevin Pollock. Actually, for you know, be- I was just thinking about it. You know, was a better Stephen Baldwin performance? What's that? Biodome. Biodome is a better film than The Usual Suspects. <laughs> wow, that's bold. <laughs> Biodome's I fine. Mean, I, you could do a lot worse than Biodome. Um, I want to give credit to Kevin Pollack for being a stand-up comedian in the 1990s and not giving a cringeworthy performance. He's actually all right in this. Yeah, I mean, I like Kevin Pollack quite a bit as an actor too. Um, he's a he's a good. He has a type. He's like I like I I'd write a movie and have a Kevin Pollack type. <laughs> I think it's really smart that they didn't make him do any impressions in this film. <laughs> Because you go back in the 90s, and they often hire comedians for their shtick. Remember in the 1990s when Dennis Miller was in every movie? 
I, I've seen Demolition Man, yeah. <laughs> That's Dennis Leary, different dude. Oh, Dennis. Oh, I've seen Bard- Bardello of Blood. There we go. Is that a better reference? There you go. I've uh, He was in – what was the one that I've seen in the most in? Joe Dirt was the one I've seen in the most in. That is a, that's a good film. Joe Dirt holds up. People should watch rewatch Joe Dirt. The homophobia, not great. Everything else, pretty good. Here, like, you want to talk hot takes? Um, like, not that it's great, but <laughs> Joe Dirt, ha- like, uh, Adam Beach is in that movie and gives a pretty good performance. He does. And is therefore, <laughs> and is therefore more woke than the usual suspect. <laughs> I, and, <laughs> and I mean, here's the fuck, I think I talked about this when I had the Joe Dirt episode of 30 Below, like, 10 years ago, <laughs> is that Adam Beach is kind of a, like, a shocking ra- this is depressing what I'm gonna say, to be clear, is a shocking sure. rarity in American comedy films in that he is a Native American character who being Native American is almost none of the punchlines to his jokes. Exactly. Um, also, Brittany uh, Daniels in that movie, and I like her a lot, uh, including, uh, in It's Always Sunny, even though she is the most problematic character to ever exist in It's Always Sunny. Fucking Watkins in that movie. Yeah, he gets a boner. Man, maybe we gotta go back and watch Joe Dirt. Jimmy Presley, Presley's in that movie too. She is really fun in that. Man, a lot of good people. Fred Ward, Christopher Walken, like we said, Kid Rock gives his best acting because he just plays a dick bag. That right, he pl- he plays uh, like a, the, a boyfriend, right? Uh, yeah, he plays Brittany Daniels, not boy, not boyfriend, but paramour, maybe. Um, sure. The the bully to Joe Dirt. Sure, sure. The yeah. Yeah, and Adam Beach kind of plays his foil. He's his buddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Playing, playing the character of Kicking Wing. Kicking Wing. That's right. Um, if you guys want to watch a good movie, go watch Smoke Signals. That's a great movie. Um, but Usual Suspects. What else do we have to say about it? It's a perfectly okay crime drama that's been sullied by the misdeeds of its cast. The twist also is fun. To, the first time the twist happens, it's fun. If you think about it it's- for like two seconds, it's the worst twist and none of it actually makes sense i mean it's still kind of fun i mean like these these kinds of stories have like purposely labyrinthine and nonsensical endings sometimes this but it's 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 it was kind of a sensation because it was small and it was scrappy and managed to round up a bunch of talent yeah and and kind of like with snatch it's kind of gotten market corrected in the last like 15 years because kind of all i can see is the better versions of this yeah because brian singer no great shakes as a director chris mccrory would go on to write and direct much better films yeah certainly because like he's like the he's like the um um he's like the sherpa of the uh, mission impossible franchise now Mm -hmm. and like those movies kick ass and jack reacher i will go to bat for as a incredibly good like dumb action movie and uh a lot of people like uh the movie that macquarie did after this which was called the way of the gun uh which i have not seen but again i've heard good things <laughs> these about. are all movies that you should watch instead of the usual instead suspects. of the usual suspects yeah um <sighs> but there's a movie that you should watch oh most assuredly yeah. and you can watch it if you have the criterion channel at home this show not brought to you by the criterion <laughs> channel but if they want to hit us up we'll take it Oh, fuck. Most assuredly. Uh, yes, uh, Mr. Kasavitz's La'ain. Uh, hate for you non-Francos out there. Because hate begets hate, don't you know? That's what Hubert says in the John. 
So this was both our first time seeing this movie. Yes, and which is weird it because it came out of nowhere for me. I don't know about you. I had ha- I had heard about it because it was in the uh, Criterion Collection, and I knew absolutely nothing about it at all. Well, I knew that it was uh, a crime film from the '90s in from France that caused uh, a pretty big sensation when it came out. Uh, I knew that it was uh, stylistically bold and uh was uh confrontational in its presentation and i knew that uh your friend and mine uh your former podcasting partner and uh my friend uh, ross burks is a great fan of this movie and uh, it delivered the goods this is an incredible piece of work it sure is i was kind of blown away by how much i both enjoyed and was uh invested in this film the entire way through in what it takes what should be something i don't really care for and turns it into something I couldn't stop watching. And that was most movies from like the 90s that are like quote unquote stylistically innovative do not hold up mm-hmm. and they look kind of silly now. Just like if you look at like album covers from the 90s, they all look kind of silly. It was a silly aesthetic period. But this. Uh, yeah, Dayglo was a thing for a whole <laughs> part of it, right? Um, but this movie, the aesthetics and the way that it's shot and the way that it is edited together still feels fresh and interesting. And the word visceral is so overused, but visceral. It's very spare. There's not a whole lot of moving parts of this movie. And when there are, it's pretty evident. Like, Kasovitz is first and foremost uh, an actor. He has been acting since like the late 70s, knows his way around a set. Uh, this was his, uh, not his debut as a director, because he had another film play can a couple of years prior called Metzis, uh, which apparently is also quite good. This was his second full length. And... Like, on the surface of it, there's not a whole lot of moving parts. There's sort of... This is actually part because it cribs a lot from American, like, contemporary American film. Uh, Do the Right Thing is kind of the one that people point to. Do the Right Thing is the big obvious one. Another obvious one is Martin Scorsese, what with Vaisaka said doing the Are You Talking to Me speech in French in the movie mm-hmm. uh shades of uh, shades of raging bull and the, and the cinematography i think i read something either he said or someone said about the film steven spielberg who is an influence uh i think this might be because um actually i don't know why <laughs> i don't know where i was going with that but uh, I'll, I'll 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 take whoever's word for it um but yeah this film is kind of spare in its in its uh in its parts it's kind of elemental it's dollies zooms close-ups there's nothing like it's not like snatch where it's like every trick every scene might have one trick like there's a scene where it's very clearly a split diopter shot there's one scene where they do like the giant vertigo zoom the giant telescope zoom which is fucking nauseating but like a great piece of camera work um and also long stretches long unfussy unbroken takes of people just talking and they're just moving in slowly or moving away slowly it's just enough to keep you engaged and like as far as like meat and potatoes craft goes i don't think you can get a lot better than this no i'd I'd agree even like the shots that are not flashy are still so wonderfully composed and the way he uses frames within frames a lot like uh some of our other favorite, favorite filmmakers we've talked about on here like there's that shot in the bathroom where 
uh, Vince and Hubert are in different stalls, and then uh, Saeed is on the phone, and just the way he frames that and uses the mirrors in there, it's really simple, but the way that he's constantly able to keep everyone in frame despite changing where he's putting that camera is so... Actors who are directors are good at blocking actors. Turns out. Um, so yeah, so Vaisa uh, Kassel, Hubert Koundé, and Saeed Tagmawi play Vince, Hubert, and Saeed. I mean, why, why fuck with a good thing? So, uh, ascent, so this whole movie starts with like, over the entire credits, it's, what is it? It's, uh, a Bob Marley song over riot footage. And it's, um, this whole movie is about, it's not about social unrest. It's just like about, it's about life in Les Banlieues in the mid nineties. It's like, it's, it's, it's the hood basically. And it's just these three guys post, uh, uh, um, I think there was like a demonstration that descended into a riot and one of their friends was hospitalized. And basically we are with them for like a day after their friend is hospitalized. There's a huge riot. Their school burnt down. That's one of the things with this movie is that these dudes don't look like high schoolers. <laughs> they, they, they look like men. They look like just full grown men. Maybe, uh, maybe Saeed a little less, but they all look like fucking grown ups. But you know, that's. That's theater of the mind. That's special disbelief. That's some cinema sins shit. I'm not gonna harp on this movie for that. So this is a day in the life uh, of someone who's like poor, disenfranchised, and it should be pointed out. Uh, Vince Jubaya and Saeed are uh, Jewish, black, and Arab, respectively. And that sounds like when you say that, Derek, that sounds like it's going to be an incredibly didactic film. And it's not. It's not, which is shocking. That shocked me when I watched it. Is I expected it to be like, hey. Here's what it's like to be Arabic, Arab in France. Here's what it's like to be Jewish. Here's what it's like to be African. And that's part of it. That's part of the milieu that the film like involves itself in, part of the characterizations of every character. But it is not overwhelming. And it is not there, – there's a way to play that, I think a way that an American director would play that, which is very heavy-handed. And like everyone has big speeches about what it means to – be their certain ethnic group in this place it's in this time. It's not misery porn. Yes, it's not misery porn. The, these feel like natural aspects of the characters instead of the characters are being written around this one aspect of them. These are like fully fleshed out human beings. Like their characterization is not limited to the fact that they are Jewish, black, and, and Arab. Mm -hmm. And I think the the moments that it does kind of pop in and the differences between their respective uh, like – to, to use the contemporary language, their, their respective privileges and disadvantages mm -hmm. and oppressions, the way that those interact, they're often really subtle and they're never pointed out. For example, there's a fact that uh, Hubert, which is, who is African, is far more uh, – we should say that uh, uh, Vince finds a police officer's gun and keeps it. And that's kind of the plot of the movie. <laughs> that's more or less it. Yeah, that's like the MacGuffin. Yeah. Except and, it's, uh, it's actually there. And Hubert, uh, he's the most wary of it. And there's the implication that it's because he knows that if he gets caught around that, it is far worse for him than it is for Vince. And yeah. maybe even worse than it is for uh, Saeed. Yes. And that's never spoken. But it's just the way that he reacts it's to things in the and the that's way right. that he characterizes, like the, the movie characterizes him and the way the actor, like all three main actors are wonderful. They're really The way good. they react to these things. It's, it's so rich without having to spell itself out. Like consistently, I mean, if you were to sort of 
like um make the character like to broadly generalize the three characters uh vince is the hothead mm-hmm. and you know n- not coincidentally is also the white passing one ubai is the most le- uh, the most level-headed he's the most kind of wary of everything and he's functionally the voice of reason of the trio and Said is just kind of like the young, naive, sort of... He, he's like the kid brother of the trio. Yeah, definitely. And the the film very emphatically ends with him closing his eyes. And it's a small decision, but it carries the weight of the film that just happened with it. And... It's it's yeah. This is just a fucking great movie. Yeah. Like and it's, I, like oh, the thing we talked about in the uh, when we were just uh, chatting back and forth when I was watching it. I think you were watching it at the same time, or, yes. or somewhere around the same time. Is there's this feeling of constant dread, even though the yeah. movie is not hammering at home. There's this you know you know something bad's going to happen. You can just feel it, but you don't know where it's going to come from, and you don't know how it's going to arrive. And to get on my pretentious high horse for a moment, that is such a, like a beautiful and like wonderful metaphor for life in poverty and life as an oppressed person is this feeling like there's something's bad's going to happen and i know it but i don't know how it's going to happen and i don't know if i can control it and turns out you can't it turns out that they're just it's society in free fall as they say a couple times in yep. the film it's not the fall it's the landing great movie great movie fucked up that this guy went on to make gothica <laughs> an even better film <laughs> sure I that that one I'm being sarcastic on. I would not put my name to that opinion. Do not clip that out and make me look like a real douchebag. I I, I think my lucky stars that were not big enough to have out of context middle brow madness. Because <laughs> I tell you what, lots of, lots of material, lots of lots of grist for that particular mill. So usual suspects moves on, right? It's uh, that's what we're doing. I thought we were under. I, th- I was under the impression that Laine was going to move on to face Wild Strawberries, which is going to be a really interesting matchup. Yeah, that's. I'm not sure how I feel about that, but I'm excited to actually have that matchup. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting, to ch- an interesting one to chew on. Three crime films entered this particular pod. Only one of them actually leaves. Could have been. I guess the most that could have went was two, but whatever. So that's that. Do we have any follow up? Before we rattle off our plugs and sign off. Derek, I do have something. Oh. Oh, no. That's <laughs> um, not the answer I was anticipating. Uh, and this is your fault, just to be clear. Oh, no. Because a couple weeks ago. Yeah? Actually, about a month ago now, when we actually recorded it. But okay. a couple weeks ago, in terms of the podcast time, uh, you made a comment uh, about fan fiction. Because I brought up, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Blink to Time Sweeper fan fiction. And you said That's that right. you were surprised that I had not written fan fiction. And did you write fan fiction? Derek, I wrote a little bit of fan fiction. Oh, no. And oh, wait, oh, hold on. What kind of fan fiction? How do you mean? Okay. Two pronged question. What's uh, like, uh, what are uh, like, what IP did you use to write your story? And uh, if, if the MPAA were giving a rating on this story, what rating would it get? Well, Derek, I can't fully answer those for a really important reason, which is I started doing this as a joke. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to bust, uh, I'm, I'm bust I, this out and it'll be fun. And then we'll so move on. So many things in your life, so far as I understand, so many things in your life start with, I started doing this as a joke. That is most of how my life goes. And, uh, and it turns out I had a lot to write and I got in really excited about writing it. 
Okay. Um, so this is going to be multiple episodes worth. Oh my I'm not God. sure how that... long because I'm still in the process of writing it. I only oh I'm only going to read the first page today. That sets okay. up two characters. <laughs> um, it is not sexually explicit yet. I don't know if it will be because I'm still yet. working on it. Uh, Derek, would you like to um, hear the first? Let's say the first chapter of this piece of fan fiction. All right, all right. Okay, does okay. I got a couple of questions before you get into the meat of this. Okay. One. Now you have two bits that I have to counteract. You don't have to counteract this one. You just have to enjoy it. You get to sit. I'm going to read you a wonderful story. And okay. you just have to sit back and enjoy. All right. Now, does this opus have a title? Not yet. Okay. Untitled Isabel Arf Project it is. Yes. But you think the audience is ready for this? I decided to do one page at a time because that seems like a, like a decent amount of text. I don't fucking know. I Like, listen. I think... Our our audience, God love them, are down with all of the bullshit we do, and I don't see why your bespoke fan fiction, being the tail end of our movie show, would be any different. I will say this: this is one thing. I this is one slight, not spoiler, but context. I will give is that all of the IP that I'm using is represented in our podcast. <sighs> it is all movies from the list. Okay. All right, I'm I'm ready. I'm okay. ready for Untitled Isabella uh, Isabella Project. Okay, so it was 5 a.m. in the sleepy California suburb of Hill Valley, and the rising sun covered the perfectly manicured lawns in blue hues that slowly turned to orange and then yellow, like the bruise of morning fading into the memory of night. On Saturdays like this, there would be no one up and about for a few more hours, no work to go to, no school to attend, and so the neighborhood would sleep calmly for a bit more before it would groggily greet the day. In a perfectly average two-level, not too different from any other house in the block, a middle-aged man tossed and turned in the room that used to belong to his parents before they moved to Florida and left the place for him. What had been given as a kind gesture now felt alien to him, imprisoning, a weight that pressed on him even when he slept. Some nights it was a comfort, a reminder of what he had worked so hard in his past to save, but others, like this one, rest came in fits and starts when it came at all. There was once so much noise in the house, a cacophony even, but now it sat still, like the dust on so many amplifiers stacked in crowded, disorganized rooms. Suddenly, his phone rang, a pale echo of that noise, and half awake, he grasped in the darkness for his red vest. He rifled through the pockets, pulling out loose pills. <laughs> Fuck you. I, I mean... He rifled through the pockets, pulling out loose pills some guitar picks, and some chewing gum, before finally feeling the smooth yet frictional silicone case he was looking for. He looked at the screen that lit up his scraggly beard and tired eyes, number unknown. Confused, he answered, unsure of who would be calling at this hour or calling him at all. Hello? Hello, said a strangely artificial voice on the other end. Is this Mr. McFly? Martin Seamus McFly? Marty grew even more confused. No one ever called him by his full name. The most likely option was some sort of bill collector or scam artist, but even then, he never gave his middle name out. Yeah, yeah, it's Marty. Who is this? You don't know me, Mr. McFly, but I was a friend of a friend of yours at one time in the past. Heard secondhand the contours of you and your friend's times in this world. I know you have a past more complicated than you've let others believe, and I know the car in your garage isn't just an automotive relic falling apart in old age. Marty's pulse quickened. Of the people who knew this information, he was the only one still among this time, still in this sequence of events. There should be no living memory that would be, that would know these facts in this way besides his own. 
He steeled himself, trying not to crack while responding. And knowing all this, what is it that you've called me for? To shoot the shit? To ask for help? Doc's gone, and I burned the right papers long ago so no one could repair what he'd made. Whatever you're trying to get from me, it's not going to happen. There was a quick laugh on the other end of the line. You've said some variation on that every time we've spoken, Mr. McFly. I do appreciate the consistency. Now, would you like to continue this conversation and hear what I have to say? Or would you like to hang up and restart the day again until you give me the answer I want? Marty was trembling now and no longer trying to hide it when he spoke back. What is it you have to say? The two spoke for only three more minutes, but by the end of it, Marty knew more than he'd ever wished he had. Hanging up the phone and sliding, in the po sliding it in the pocket of the torn old jeans he had slept in, he walked. He was so in his own head he didn't even notice the sun breaking into his kitchen window, the sweet smell of the oranges on the counter, the cold linoleum floor his bare feet crossed towards the garage door. There she was, faded and tarnished but still beautiful in the way old things gain beauty, through time bestowed upon them like a fine dust of memory. He set his hand on the hood, surprisingly warm in the cold of the garage, and resolved to do what he knew he had to do. He picked up his phone and called the only man he knew who could help. Hey Rancho, I'm gonna need to call on that favor. <laughs> and that's the end of chapter one of the as of yet untitled fanfic. Oh my god. Uh, Rancho, Rancho from Three Three Idiots. Yes, Rancho from Three Idiots. Oh my god. <laughs> so this will be a recurring segment on, on our future podcasts. Oh my god. If you like it, please write in to tell me. Because <laughs> I put way too much work into this. Wow. That's one chapter? That's one chapter. That's only one page. Oh man. We're going to try to keep this, this Dan Brown style where each one's only one page. Alright, how long do you think this is going to be? Derek, I can't say that. I, I, I'm still in the middle of the story. Oh my god. Do you have, like, friggin' charts? Like, do you have, like, an arc for your story lined up? I'll say this. I, I, I know who the man was on the other end of the line. I know how Rancho was involved. And okay. I know the next few chapters pretty well. And I also know maybe a, a, a romantic paramour for Mr. Marty McFly. For Mr. Marty McFly, okay. But besides that... I'm still, I have a general end I'm heading towards, but I'm not sure how I'm entirely getting there yet. We're working on it. So, so you're writing this like a D&D &D campaign? Yes, very much so. Okay. All right. Well, tune in next time for uh, the second entry in the Untitled Isabel R. Fan Fiction Project. Um, now can I do the plug? <laughs> yes, now you can do these wonderful plugs that we love so much. Oh, Lord. Okay. So uh, if you like whatever the fuck this is, because... Um, See, I I am a naif in that I still believe this is a movie podcast. <laughs> this is not a movie podcast. There's a po it's a podcast where we do talk about movies, but a movie podcast this ain't. And if you like whatever the fuck this has become, please uh, show us some love on the Apple Podcasts page. Rate us five stars or however many stars you think this is worth. Uh, we like we're so small that it's still kind of uh, puts the thumb on the scale a little bit for us. It helps us uh, be more visible, if you will. Um, this podcast, obviously available where all good podcasts are available. Um, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at middlebrowpod. You can email the podcast uh, at middlebrowmadness at gmail.com. Uh, our uh, inbox is very open. Uh, we are still soliciting uh, vegan recipes uh, opinions about what is it the picts 
Yes. Uh, the, well, the, the, specifically the relationship of modern day England to the Picts. Okay. Um, uh, any kind of like Bollywood recommendation? Uh, actually, just just kind of send us some cool shit. And if it's make like this on- podcast even longer. <laughs> yeah, like if if it's like if it's cool and it's like not like illegal, we'll probably share it. Uh, if you want to get in t- uh, if you want to get in touch with either one of us. We're both on Twitter. You can contact me at Derek underscore G. You can contact Isabel at Space Jam Fan. Uh, we are uh, available also on Letterbox at both those same handles now. And that's correct now because Isabel nuked her Letterboxd. Yeah, now I have a brand new one. This I realized a day after doing it, it was a terrible idea, but I've already done it. So here we are. This is the, this is the, this is the world we live in. And this is the chance we're given. Uh, sp- <laughs> Speaking of chances, uh, we hope that you will give us another chance to make an episode that is not as digressive or just all out bizarre next time. Um, do we have anything else? I think that's everything. Um, I've been Isabel Arf. And I've been Derek God. I have movies. Be jolly. Have wait, wait, movies. wait. Hold on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Stop oh, pressing. Yeah. We forgot should, should to set up Should I add like a record scratch sound effect there? Please do if you find one. I forgot to set up the fucking uh, matchups for next week. Oh, shit, yeah. Next week, it'll be Platoon versus Das Boot and The Wages of Fear versus The Lives of Others. Sounds a lot more dour than what we had this time. Sounds a lot longer. Thank God all the like all the movies this week were under two hours. It was wonderful. Oh, yeah, it was dope. Whereas I'm trying to figure out which version of Das Boot I'm going to watch. I'm all trying to find the shortest are too version. long. Yeah, the, the short, the theatrical, the original theatrical version is like two hours 40. And this like was... Uh, Wolfgang Peterson shot enough material to make it into a full-on miniseries. There are, like, cuts that are, like, several hours long. I don't want to watch that cut. But uh, we'll talk about that next episode. Um, I've been Isabel Arf. And I've been Derek Gunning. And for real this time, have movies be jolly. Have movies be jolly. Be jellical. Good night, everybody. <laughs>